Hello and welcome to Securities, a podcast and newsletter devoted to science, technology, finance, and the human condition. I'm your host, Andy Crite, and today we're talking about Web3 infrastructure and regulations, a super interesting topic. This is where the action is these days in the crypto world. And joining me today are two special guests. First from Lux Capital, Grace Isford. Grace, welcome to the program. Thanks, Danny. And and one of our Lux portfolio founders, Ann Jaskew of Tactic. Thanks for having me, Danny. So Ann, you recently joined the Lux portfolio, so, so welcome. Uh, I'd love to hear your background because you started not in the crypto space. Tell us a little bit about Flatiron Health and how you moved into the Web3 area. Yeah, absolutely. At Flatiron Health, a lot of what I worked on was taking messy data, albeit out of electronic medical records, cleaning it up and turning it into something regulatory grade for the FDA and life sciences companies. And actually, that's quite similar from a raw technical perspective with what we do at Tactic now. I'd always liked the academic angle of crypto, loved the math long before I had actually read the Satoshi white paper. And I think what really interested me about Ethereum specifically was I worked in security for a while and I dealt with OAuth, I de- dealt with identity providers and sort of, you know, logging into things. And it's just a pain from a technical perspective. And then, of course, your identity, like all your scopes and claims are tied to something central, usually Google or Facebook or, or Microsoft Active Directory. And what I saw with Ethereum was sort of like a login to the internet. And that seems to be not what people always talk about in crypto. It's a lot of, you know, token prices. But that to me of, you know, federating your identity to a distributed system was just so cool. And I felt like I had to do something in the space. So I started poking around, started building something and got to the point where I was, you know, ready to make a real company. And part of that, of course, is setting up your FinOps stack. And I kind of wasn't sure how to do it if I had tokens floating around. So, you know, what I thought was going to happen was I'd, you know, buy some some crypto on Coinbase or whatever centralized exchange. I'd presumably have a team of people with their various MetaMasks and would be, you know, throwing crypto around uh, whenever you, you know, write something to the ETH chain. If you're minting an NFT and the price of Ethereum has changed since you bought it, which inevitably it has, that turns out that's a realized loss or gain. And it was something I wanted to track. It didn't really see a lot of solutions out there and started talking to the great network I had met of crypto founders. was like, hey, so like, how do you close your books every month? Like, how would you pass an audit? Like, what if you go public? How does this work with the SEC? And pretty universally, the answer was, uh, if you figure it (laughs) It out, uh, yeah, (laughs) it was, uh, if you figure it out, definitely let me know. And so that is how Tactic was born. So let's talk about a little bit of the Web3 infrastructure stack. So, I mean, this has been a thesis for the last couple of years. Obviously, people always get distracted with NFTs and crypto prices and the crypto winter, then the crypto summer, and then the crypto winter again, yacht parties. But I feel like we're actually building something really fundamental here with the actual infrastructure side. Uh, and it feels like a lot of things are changing. So I'm curious, does the state of Web3 today, what are you seeing in, in late 2022? We talk a lot about Lux, about what the larger crypto world doesn't always pay attention to, which is the things that are objectively better. So that's the infrastructure, what we can point to in security, reliability, exchanges, network, compute, financial infrastructure, compliance, where we can offer a 10x better experience or really point to, you know, that is solving a problem, making a better technology, solving a hard technical problem, really on the tech frontier. What struck me about Tactic was kind of the stickiness of the problem they were solving. And it's a technical problem, as Ann mentioned, very hard to keep track of B2B crypto payments. Today, it's mostly that manual process and existing, you know, status quo providers 
don't have the technical capability to, to really track and be able to go from end to end from payment to logging your books. Obviously, we've talked about companies that are publicly traded. I think Tesla is a good example. Uh, Block is another one who have had at least Bitcoin holdings or or in, I guess Tesla's case, they also had um, um, Dogecoin. Or, or maybe that was just Elon Musk. I can never keep track. They're basically the same at this point. Um, but but what, what will tactics sort of empower companies to do beyond just holding one token? I think it's more about the transactional nature. So right now, if you're a, a major enterprise, I don't want to trivialize holding Bitcoin on your balance sheet. If you just buy some Bitcoin and it sits there, you may have to do some impairment, but it's not super complicated. The point where you get where things are moving around frequently you have prices fluctuating, maybe you're international, that's when there's a new level of complexity. So if I am a tech company building something on chain, that is very much when this becomes just totally untenable. And, and when it comes to the regulators themselves, is this something that they're paying attention to these days or is it still sort of a laissez-faire situation? I think there's just increasing regulatory scrutiny every day on this, which is why the problem is, is really burning. I want to pivot a little bit as a conversation. So this month, there was a big story, which was the Ethereum chain had, quote unquote, the merge. The merge. The merge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What what was that? I didn't hear about that one. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a good sign uh, because I I, I feel like if it actually had failed, it would have been front page news all over the internet and all over the front page of of major newspapers. Ironically, it actually went extraordinarily well in in the immediate hours and, and days following it. Let's talk a little bit about this because this has this has been Vitalik's dream for I guess since 2016, 2017. So six, seven years later, his vision of moving from a, a proof of work to a proof of stake model has has been implemented. What does that do for for Ethereum and the and the Web3 ecosystem more broadly? Yeah, I think the big headline here is that Ethereum has proven its ability to actually update its architecture and evolve it in a meaningful way and kind of continue to execute on that ambitious roadmap of Vitalik. You know, as a user of Ethereum or, or blockchains, it's really not going to affect you too much. I think the the two or three biggest takeaways I've thought about is one, you know, in making ETH more energy efficient. For those who don't know already, reduce energy consumption by ninety nine percent. Very meaningful because of that transition you mentioned. Making it more secure. You know, you don't have to be a sophisticated miner to secure networks and, and validate. So I think overall exciting, but net for an average user on ETH, uh, not going to affect you too much, which is a good thing. I think in terms of enterprise adoption, what's really interesting here was to see an upgrade of this magnitude really succeed. So like the open source success people always point to that got adopted was Linux. Traditionally, as someone who has worked in security, when you evaluate a vendor, you're always a little shaky on like pumping in something open source because, you know, maybe it's just maintained by like two random guys. And if they get bored, (laughs) suddenly a core part of your infrastructure is gone and you hear about like, you know, people splitting, getting, you know, controversy in different packages. And it's just this scary dependency to build. So even sometimes small changes go awry, things go stale. And I think something happening of this magnitude and this complexity where really nothing went awry you know, inspire a lot of confidence into people who are a little scared to build critical infrastructure on a centralized project. Well, I will say I, I'm going back to April 2014 when, when Heartbleed, a, a very famous <laughs> bug in the OpenSSL software, and, and you know, we, we had this massive gaping hole in basically every computer system because OpenSSL is used for anything to encrypt basically communications on the web. So if you use a web browser, you almost certainly use OpenSSL across Mac, Windows, and Linux. And, and then we found out that there was exactly one human, one engineer somewhere who was actually coding all this and was doing all the work himself. And and so there was an initiative to get more folks to, to focus on this open source software. But, but Anna, I agree with you 100% that the fact that 
Ethereum, which is a community of now thousands and thousands of people who have both contributed code, who are part of the design community, um, who are building it and moving it forward, were able to come to, quote unquote, consensus in a, in a fun way. <laughs> pun in intended. Pun in, pun, that was my bad pun of the day. <laughs> um, uh, consensus around the future of the trajectory is a really good sign. I, I'm curious, like, when you look at a lot of these open source projects, there, there is this term of, of the BDFL, the Benevolent Dictator for Life. So in, in Python, it was uh, uh, Guido for a long time. Many different programming communities have this sort of dynamic. Is Vitalik still playing that role of sort of the, the BDFL for Ethereum? I think he's a very important figure. And you think of all the, the figures in kind of the, the crypto blockchain worlds right now. Of course, Satoshi, who people, you know, can't really put a face to. But Vitalik has really served almost as a, a mayor or, or spokesman uh, for a lot of the ecosystem. So I do think he, he has influence, a strong readership of his blog. And, you know, in, in fact, will probably gain a bit more recognition for successfully completing Act 2 uh, of the merge. So I want to talk about a little bit more of the, of the Web3 stacks. So obviously we're in 2022. It's not completely new. It wasn't weeks old. It's now been a couple of years. What's going well? Where are the, the pockets where there is good infrastructure? And it seems like there's good platforms and APIs. And, and similar in, in the category of accounting, you know, there's clearly gaps and there's more to come. Where, where are the pros and where are the gaps? I think there are a lot of gaps. Uh, <laughs> this is Grace uh, announcing the launch of her new infrastructure company. <laughs> um, it, well, I, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in the data, data and developer infrastructure stack. And a lot of the, that stack has parallels to Web 2 and often overlaps with Web 2. So it's less about, you know, how advanced is Web 3, but also where existing Web 2 companies that are mature, reliable, scalable, porting in to Web 3. But if you think of the whole comprehensive stack, my immediate reaction to that question is we are so far behind in terms of reliability, security, scalability, and why you need a lot more companies building and also why I'm excited to invest in the space. Yeah. And to add to that, I think, uh, you know, automated testing, auditability, you know, smart contract audits, that type of stuff. I think we're we're still seeing a scary number of people effectively test things in production, <laughs> which to be fair is all over the Web2 space as well. It's just a little scarier when there's programmable money. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, let me ask you, Anna, because obviously you, you're coming both from a data governance provenance background as well as a security background um, in the context of Flatiron Health. And, you know, when I think of healthcare, I think of uh, among the highest bars for data protection in the country, it's under HIPAA. Everything has to be very careful and protected, lots of rules. How are, is that culture being translated into the crypto world? Is it still the Wild West or have the standards sort of risen from your perspective in the community? We've been surprised by how many people we've met in the space, especially on the finance and operations side, who take this very seriously and desperately want to do the right thing. But, you know, regulatory guidance is still quite nebulous. So it's it's not easy. But I will say a lot of the typical paradigms, you know, in and outside of tech still apply of like principle of least privilege, basic role-based access controls. What I think a lot of people forget about security is, you know, you think of a nebulous hacker somewhere in like a, you know, basement in North Korea, when really it's just like someone shared their Netflix password with their roommate. And it turns out that's also their work password to all their data. Right. I, I'm remembering a tweet I was reading recently that was basically like, if, if if one employee clicking on a phishing email compromises your entire network, something very wrong is with the company and not with the employee. So, Anne, following up from that, I also want to talk about, um, I mentioned HIPAA and we're talking about data uh, protection and provenance, but but all, obviously a lot of those rules tend to be very localized and, and there's huge data sovereignty issues going on around the world. It was actually a subject I covered a lot when I was a managing editor at TechCrunch. 
of, of how the world is sort of um, separating into different fragments. So uh, India has its own rules. China has its own rules. U.S. is splitting off. Europe is sort of becoming a one rule supercontinent of sorts, but it's on its own and has very different setups than the United States. Um, when you think about the Web3 world, it's among the most democratized. It's the same chain everywhere. You can't kind of separate the chains. There's no Ethereum chain of Europe versus an Ethereum chain of India, uh, et cetera. How do you handle different national regulatory regimes in the context of an international chain? So I think the answer is I don't know, which is you know <laughs> a little unsatisfying. Um, and that's actually why Tactic focuses very much on the U.S. market right now, because it's very possible that every European country will come up with something different. Um, like we saw with GDPR, I don't know how effective it is. I think you, you, know, you get a lot of pop-ups and accept cookies and uh, some headache for engineers. <laughs> right. Whether it has globally moved the needle for data privacy is a different question. Yeah, I, I'd agree that Nash internationally, we don't have strong conviction yet. I'm excited, though, about the U.S. regulatory tide and the attention to crypto. I know a lot of people are afraid of what regulatory action the U.S. will take. We've seen a lot of stuff uh, in the last few weeks from the SEC and beyond uh, around crypto and cryptocurrencies being recognized. Well, I think what, what's interesting is, is twofold. One is regulators are starting to poke around. So um, before the show, we were talking about Gary Gensler, but Gary Gensler was here in New York a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that he feels comfortable giving up sort of non-security token sales over to the Commodities Future Trading Commission and the, keeping the securities under the SEC banner. So that was a huge sort of block over the last couple of years is basically which regulatory agency would control token sales. I mean, it looks like that's getting cleared up a little bit in D.C. Uh, but on the flip side, I, I'm finding that more and more crypto founders are becoming, I guess you would call it pro-regulation, not pro-bad regulation, but pro-making the rules clearer, allowing people to be able to do their jobs. So I'm, I'm thinking of Sam Bankman-Fried um, of FTX, who has been very hard on, on trying to get the CFTC to regulate this. Similarly with others in, in the space. And then Brian Armstrong of Coinbase, who um, I guess in the Coinbase app now has a segment for being able to vote for candidates to learn more about the elections which are coming up in the U.S. in a couple of weeks. And so to me, it seems like people are really engaging on the regulatory issues. Um, but that means you also have to build the infrastructure now because if the regulations are going to come in the next two or three years. It's, it's building time this second in order to get underway. Um, but I'm going to go back to, to Anne. So when you, when you think about the, the accounting side of things, is this almost exclusively at the federal level or are you also seeing state level regulations show up in your world as well? Definitely both. And different states are at different stages. I think we all know some crypto people who've moved down to Puerto Rico because <laughs> uh, of the, the favorable laws there. Why are different states handled in different ways? Uh, the same reason they handle different ways in fiat. You you know you have state taxes in some places. You may have sales tax, income tax. Uh, it, you know it's just a, a different way we do regulation. The same way sort of like the EU exists and all the countries have their different rules based on you know cultural values or whoever's been elected or whatever the electorate chose. Uh, and so when you think about accounting for um, say token sales, does that also include accounting for the geographies those token sales take place? Uh, right now, accounting rules for geographies don't quite work because, you know, Ethereum is not collecting your IP address and can't say like, oh, by the way, you're in New York, you know, add some level of sales tax. Uh, NFT sales tax is uh, an increasingly hot topic and candidly, no one knows what it means, but it's definitely going to be a thing. I was going to say NFT stands for no effing tax, but um, <laughs> uh, so, so uh, where do you predict that's going to go in the next couple of years? 
I mean, I think there definitely will be some regulation up, you know, around it. I think state officials, federal officials can't just see all these massive transactions happening and ignore them and not try to take a cut of that pie. I think it just makes sense. And I think most people in the NFT space, you know, the same way, you know, Amazon sells goods and calculates tax for you based on the zip code you enter, uh, will have to implement some form of KYC for, for many reasons, but tax will have to be a part of that. I'm reminded of the early years of the internet when Amazon didn't collect sales tax. I mean, if you remember back in the 1990s, 2000s, uh, we went online because you didn't have to pay local sales tax. And technically you were supposed to pay it. You're supposed to fill out your form and say, you know, out of state tax and you fill out the little thing. And you technically have to do that definitely for cars and big, large purchases uh, because those are filed with the government. Uh, but Amazon had this competitive advantage for years of not having to, to collect sales tax until these laws sort of got up to date. So I, I imagine it, if the e-commerce economy I think took almost a decade to catch up to uh, the collection and, and, and monitoring of, of tax data. My guess is it'll be very similar in, in the crypto world as well. But to that end, I think that's why Tactic is so well positioned because irrespective of which way regulatory goes, they're seeing at this unique point in the immune system as kind of this universal crypto data ledger uh, that can be flexible based on you know which way regulatory goes. I also, on the regulatory question you asked earlier, I would reframe it a bit more to compliance and risk. So thinking more in terms of the safeguards and how companies can build applications to help know who the user is or the risk they pose to the platform rather than, you know, harsh regulatory rules. I think a lot of these things can be positive and that's why, you know, a lot of founders are, are excited about them uh, when, when framed in the right way. Well, and, and we heard earlier this month that um, the Justice Department was going to form a national network of prosecutors focused on crypto crime, uh, mostly about major crimes. But it is an example of it doesn't just have to be tax collection, it doesn't have to just be what tokens do I have and, and where are they? It's also about tracking those flows over time because there's going to be increasing need to actually have an audit trail, um, having compliance, making sure you know who your customer is. Um, because a lot of folks aren't looking to be part of any sort of dark economy. It's just part of um, modernizing our modern fintech stack. And that's been our thesis here as well, um, is that this is supplanting, hopefully, credit cards, other middlemen, um, et cetera. And so um, as, as the regulations catch up, as the compliance software catches up, I, I think we're going to have a, a much stronger economy going forward. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Danny.